it's like 11.10 or 11.15 at night, and you're hearing the band warming up in the studio, maybe Keenan's on stage doing the warm-up song, and you're in the hallway outside Lauren's office, and the writers who are working on the monologue, which is going to go on television in about 10 or 15 minutes, are looking for jokes. You know, and that's like both a thrilling, fun moment and a really scary moment because, you know, you're about to go down and have three jokes that you're going to say, hey, Adam Driver, do you want to do these, any of these jokes for the first time in 10 minutes? You know, so those are moments where you might just happen to be passing through the hallway. And as a head writer, you feel a responsibility to stop and to spend the next five minutes, even though you've got weekend update stuff to prepare, spend five minutes trying to brainstorm a monologue joke because the writers need help. And as anyone does, like anytime it's your piece, you're always looking for help. You know, that's what, when I was here, Seth was great at doing, was pitching in in that way. Paul Appel was great at doing and Kent Sublette. Like those three people gave me some of the best lines sometimes in sketches I wrote. So as much as you can be, it's always wonderful if you pitch a joke and the writers really like it and put it in. That's thrilling. You know, that's still thrilling for me after all these years. The craziest thing for me was when I first did Bailey on Weekend Update, Will Ferrell was the other person doing Weekend Update that week. So I was on Che's side and he was on Colin's side and so the weekend update's going on live, and we're on opposite ends, me and Will Farrell, and I'm looking across, and he's, like, giving me thumbs up, and before I'm going to go on and being like, you can do it, you know, like, across the way. And so that was just surreal to have that support going into it. You don't want to get your stink all over their stuff. You know what I mean? You don't want to make it yours. You want to stay out of people's way, but watch them from a distance, and when you think they need a little advice, you'll pull them aside and go... You know what I might do is this instead of this. Just think about that. You never swoop. It's always a, you know, a drive-by. You know, it's just little notes like make sure your jacket is buttoned. Little tiny things that you go, because they have to find it for themselves or else it's never authentic, you know, because we don't need actors here. We need comedians, you know, and there's not 20 takes to get the right thing, like a movie where you go, oh, one of those will work. So it has to come from them and you can only give people advice and when to give and when to not give it is that's where I earn my money I think because you don't want to at the wrong time crushes their ego too late it doesn't make them feel good too early it doesn't sink in welcome to episode three of origins Saturday Night Live behind the scenes of season 44 too wild and crazy ignorant slut Sometimes when you're president, you have to make sacrifices, so I skip the back nine. Live from New York! Live from New York! Live from New York! It's Saturday night! In episode one, we looked at how the show wrestles with political satire in the Trump era, and we heard Alec Baldwin announce he would be returning to SNL to impersonate the president. And in episode two, we learned how the cast used their summers to recharge creatively and how they're preparing for the new season. Now, in episode three, we'll take you through a week at SNL, from the brainstorming sessions on Monday to the after party in the wee hours of Sunday morning. We'll hear about how the show finds new talent and where the cast and crew see themselves and the show headed in season 44 and beyond. We begin with co-head writer Michael Che. I asked Che about the ubiquitous line between being funny and being offensive. 
Well, the thing is, depending on who you ask, that line is everywhere. It's literally everywhere. You know, it's like pixels on a TV screen. Like those dots make up the picture. Everyone's offended by something. So once you start to get into that, then you might as well, you're just in the wrong business. You kind of have to say what you think is truly funny and, and hope that it connects. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. There's a lot of things that didn't. Like my favorite anchor of all time was Norm. And a lot of the stuff you watch Norm do got dead silence. But that was the funniest stuff I watched. You know, when I was a kid, I would be, you know, hysterical just, laughing. Just brilliant. Yeah, it was just great stuff. And uh, I'm sure he offended a lot of people. But it, it, that's not what it's about. People. And some NBC execs. And some NBC. Oh, yeah, apparently. <laughs> just a couple. Just a few, maybe. Yeah. But you, had to, you have to get yourself in that mindset right or does it come naturally which no just... it comes naturally i don't you know i'm doing comedy i'm I'm in the back of the classroom throwing spitballs at the teacher i don't care who doesn't like it you know that's not what i got in this for you know if that was the case i would have went into politics if i wanted to make sure everybody wasn't offended or i would have been a, a concierge or something <laughs> i would have went into customer service if i didn't want to offend anybody <laughs> i'm in comedy you know this is i think everybody's funny and of course a lot of the people that i'm making fun of aren't going to agree with me that's the nature of it but i do know that my comedy my rule is i try not to come from a bad place and i try not to come from a negative place of I want to make you laugh, too, if I'm making a joke about you. And I want you to, even if you're not going to laugh in the moment, you're going to say, well, he kind of got me there, you know. Or at least your mother will say, baby, that was a good one, <laughs> you know. <laughs> somebody, you know, somebody yeah. close to you will be like, that was a good one. Uh, that's where I'm coming from. And it doesn't always land. Like I said, it's the attempt. It doesn't always land. But that's where I'm coming from. So I never feel bad about offending anybody because I know I wasn't coming from an offensive place. Producer Lindsay Shookus is in charge of booking talent for the show compliments on your recent hires because I spent some time with Heidi and Chris Red. I mean, Chris Red is just crazy talented. He's really special. Yeah, we're lucky. And the thing about both of them is that we saw them... I saw Heidi a year before the year that I brought her into audition and she wasn't ready. You know, like, she did a showcase for me. It was solid, but it wasn't good enough. And then, you know, a year later she grew a lot and she was great. And Chris we had seen the year before too, before we hired him. So... It sounds cheesy, but there is something about like the timing being right and being at the right moment in your career and being ready to do the job. And I think both of them, had they been hired a year before, it would have been a different situation probably for them. But they really were at the perfect moment and they were ready for it. They took off, you know. Here's Emmy winner Chris Red. Do you remember the first show, though, last year? Oh, yeah, like, like it was yesterday, man. So, I, like, I, if I was next to you at 11.15 before the very first show, what was going through your head? I don't think it, it didn't register all the way that we were doing this for TV still. Like, I, <laughs> I had been on TV, but it wasn't registering, like, in my mind. Like, yo, millions of people are watching right this second. Or people will be seeing this in three hours or ten hours. Like... I was just like, it's a stage, it's time to play, and I'm ready to play. That was probably a good approach. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing I was sure of. You know what I mean? The table read was tough. It's like all these other elements of the job are so hard and new and pushing me. It was like the one thing I knew is like, well, when I get in front of the camera, when I get on stage, I'm going to just do me, you know? Because comedy is always the same when it comes to like getting ready to perform and do it. Just doing it. And so I, that's something I knew I had. So I was like, I'm just going to do the best I can and uh, try to read these cue cards and not mess up and not swear. That was the only thing I was like worried about. I was like, oh, man, what if I swear like a lot? 
because uh, I like to swear. I just kind of like what is my my lexicon. I just love, I love the, those words, <laughs> and I like using them. But then it was it was like after the first couple sketches, and then like you're seeing your Twitter blow up, and you're like, oh, yo, like this is crazy. You were but checking I, Twitter during the show. During the first uh, show? I mean, yeah, I'm looking. Man, all of it is so new to me. I'm like, what? Oh wait, how? I, I, at first it was by accident. I was just get alerts. And then I had to turn the alerts off because I was like, okay, I'm getting sidetracked. But in the first year, you're not doing a whole lot. And I'm used to like doing a ton of stuff. You know what I mean? Especially So I, you go from a show where I was like doing stuff all the time to this show where it's like you got a line here and a couple lines there. And that's just kind of how your first year is. And so there's a lot of time where I'm just sitting watching the show with everybody else. So I'm like, well, let me go online and see what it is. And it's like, yo, oh, man, I like trolling trolls. Uh, it's like a pastime. It's like bowling. You know, I, I bowl. I troll trolls. And so I would see people say stuff about the show, and I would want to say stuff. And I was like, oh, wait, this is, I'm in a different place. I can't be just tweeting too much during the show. I didn't even think about it like that until somebody said it like, look at Chris tweeting while the show is going on. And I was like, I ain't in a scene. God damn it. Don't talk shit to me. Right. <laughs> like, I'm chilling with you. <laughs> judging me you don't know nothing and i had to delete it. i deleted it. i didn't even send the tweet but i was like that's probably too much but it, i had to get kind of used to like what the life of that was like everybody having a comment on everything all the time as soon as it happens but like outside of that like even after the first show it was like hope stuff works it was different when i wrote something that i, I wrote and it, i was invested in it i was like oh it did work or it didn't work or how it like impacted the culture who like wrote about it who got in, you know affected yeah you kind of want everything to hit and like it's a sketch show so everything won't sometimes everything does it's like you just kind of never know so i mean it's just like a lot of the things i've always done like in second city and all that only it was the biggest version of that i've ever experienced i'm like this is like the nba of sketch comedy you know cast member heidi gardner i was from kansas city i was in college and i was kind of confused about what i wanted to do and I was like, well, I'm good at doing people's hair, so I'll drop out of school and do hair. But I had a certain, like, shame about dropping out of school, so then I was like, well, I'll drop out of school and move to L.A. because that sounds more legit, and I'll do hair there. So it was all a very shame-based decision. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I followed through, and I worked at a salon, and... Then about five or six years into it, I went and saw a show at the Groundlings and was like, I had heard of the Groundlings, but I was like, that's the funniest, best thing I've ever seen. I want to do that. But I was very scared because I didn't have previous acting experience. So I just took like the very basic intro to improv, which was just a bunch of people like me that were shy and had social anxiety or, you know, weren't pursuing acting. And then I liked it and I just kept on taking the levels just blissfully unaware of even a path you know it was just like oh I think this is good for my life it's making me less shy I'm a better listener and then the farther I went I kind of was like oh this could be more and and then by the time I got into Sunday Company at Groundlings I was much more focused on writing sketches than doing hair and so I decided to leave that focus on the Groundlings and and then about two and a half years later, SNL happened, so... How did that happen? Didn't you wind up doing a showcase for them? I did a showcase, yeah. In... who approached you from the show? I got an email 
from someone at Groundlings that Lindsay Shookus had reached out to her. So I did a five-minute showcase at Groundlings, and that was really cool because I got to do it kind of at, it was like my home on my stage, not my stage, but the, <laughs> the Groundlings stage, somewhere I was comfortable. So I felt so lucky to have that be like their first intro to me. And then they, a couple weeks later, flew me out to test for the show. I tested once and then waited to hear anything. And then a week later, they brought me out and I tested again. And for people in Kansas City who dream of a life like yours, what did that test consist of? So the first one I got to do was basically the same thing I did the week before at Groundlings. They're like, she can just do that same five minutes. So I was like, okay, great. And those were all like characters that I had done at Groundlings and fuller length sketches, like things that really felt comfortable in me that I knew worked. So I was like, okay, this is like my A-list. Uh, felt, I don't even remember that first test though. I mean, everything was just, <laughs> went by so fast. But then when they said, okay, we want her to come back, but this time it's got to be a completely new five minutes. That was terrifying. But what was really cool were the characters that I chose to do for that were ones that were either characters I really love that I did at Groundlings but didn't work in like a full sketch or for some reason they just weren't yeah fully formed but I always loved them and so I made them those characters work for my second audition and and that felt good because that was like the B team like things that were close to my heart and ended up working out. I want to make material for black folks. I want black people to be watching SNL like, oh, man, hey, I like that. And get references. And like, because there's sometimes, some years I haven't, there'll be things I'm like, I don't even know what this is. It's funny, but I don't know what this is. But I'm more wide open to that. But I wanted to make something that was for our culture. So how has Heidi's life changed since last September? It's changed a lot. <laughs> I mean, even just being in New York, I think when I first got the news and I was like, okay, so I'm going to be living in LA and New York. And you think like, ooh, bi-coastal, so cool. But, you know, it had been a long time since I'd done a big move like that. And I didn't realize how scary just that would be. Like living in New York for the first time, it's a little isolating. I forgot what cold weather was like. Even that part of it was just a change I wasn't expecting. Are you getting stopped on the streets now? I do, yeah. And what's that like? Well, it's so weird because I can't imagine why anyone, because the people that are nervous to approach me, I don't want them to be nervous because I'm nervous or I'm shy. So it's just funny, like anytime someone's like, I'm so sorry to do this, or and I'm like- It's almost like what you would say to somebody. <laughs> yes, and I'm like, it's, no, it's totally okay. You know, I try to make them feel comfortable and then it's, two kind of awkward, shy people, you know, bumbling, trying to have a conversation of like, no, you don't be shy. No, no, I don't. Even. Here's Melissa Villasenor. I felt like the spring season, the second half of the last season for me this second year, that's when I started to feel more at home. Like, oh, this is my home. I can spread my wings and have more fun and be silly. I'm always someone, just even at like a party that I don't know anyone, It'll take me a few hours till I feel really comfy. So I feel like even with this job, it's just letting the little shell break a bit and have fun. And and then it also, what helped is, you know, meeting a writer that really gets my humor. And Stephen Castillo is my favorite. We crack up, we hang out outside of the show, we play video games. He just feels like a cousin of mine. And I like writing with him. So I think finding that really made me happy. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that because I thought your physicality changed on the show uh, second half. You were less jittery. Thank you. There seemed to be a little bit more stature or gravitas when you were in a sketch. I felt that. I felt like more of a rock. Centered. Yeah. Yeah, centered is the word. You know what? I just thought of maybe one thing that really helped me over the summer is, again, my therapist, okay? What a wizard. I visualize a pink white light coming from my heart, and it, I see it growing and growing. And this hap- I do this when I'm at doing a show and I'm nervous about it, and I imagine my love and light spreading on all the people. And this is part of a, a hypnosis that I listen to every night going to sleep, visualizing a pink white light around me. And what I is don't pink? Know. It's the... just a color that I have focused on. So that's what was so cool about the Emmy dress that fit perfectly was that it's pink. That's probably another thing. I don't know. Again, I'm wearing pink right now. I just, there's certain things. I know I'm a spiritual person and I, I like to pray. And I, I think I've just been surrounding myself with people that lift me up and make me feel good, make me feel safe in being me. And I eliminated things and people that feel pressure or give me anxiety. You don't Google yourself, do you? I do. I'm an insane person. And I write from a place of anger. I had anger management issues growing up. And so how I've dealt with that is like I fuel all of that into creativity. So I'm used to like just reading some stuff and then being like, oh, yeah, and then going and writing something funny. But I have to manage it more now in this show. Although I don't see a lot of the terrible things, but maybe that's just net neutrality feeling. Do you Google yourself? No. Sometimes I have. Healthy again. Yeah, I've done a few times, but no. Yeah, I have to just focus on eliminating what's pointless. So do you look at mentions on Twitter? Very rarely, yeah. I just don't want my self-worth to be based on anything I'm reading. So, like, you've decided to be mature about this whole thing then, I guess, and healthy. I mean, it sounds good. I like hearing the words come out of my mouth. This feels nice. Yeah. Origins is brought to you by... 23andMe. 23andMe is a DNA testing service that produces mind-blowing insights into your ancestry, health, wellness, and traits. You'll not only find out more about where you're from, but the 23andMe Health and Ancestry Service includes reports on how your DNA can influence your weight, sleep quality, caffeine intake, sense of taste, even whether you're likely to be lactose intolerant, and more. For example, Bitter Taste Report and Sweet versus Salty Reports can show you what role DNA can play in determining your food preferences. Or, the Sleep Report can tell you if you're more likely to be an especially deep sleeper based on your DNA. So, order your 23andMe Health and Ancestry Service Kit at 23andMe.com origins. That's the number 23andMe.com origins. I often travel back and forth between the East and West Coasts and found myself on a flight recently staring at the pathetic airline menu. I didn't want to eat some big heavy meal and then sit there for five hours afterwards, but there wasn't a healthy alternative in sight. But alas, when I reached into my backpack to grab my headphones, I struck gold. I had one RX bar left that I didn't know about. Mission accomplished. RX bars are my go-to for after workouts or as a healthy snack mid-morning or between lunch and dinner. Earlier this year, I went on a hard target search for the perfect bar. I didn't want anything artificial, no dairy, no gluten, and no soy. And by the way, I needed it to taste good. RX bars check all those boxes, and there are tons of flavors to choose from. Personally, 
I could handle being deserted on an island if I had a suitcase full of their chocolate sea salt. Somehow, it delivers sweet and savory at the same time. And here's the good news. You can get 25% off your first order by visiting rxbar.com origins and enter the promo code origins at checkout. That's rxbar.com origins for 25% off your first order by entering the promo code origins at checkout. True story. When I first tried one blade razor, I gave up after 45 seconds, but the packaging was so cool. So that Saturday morning, I tried it again. This time, I actually read the instructions and decided to be, God forbid, a tad patient. The one blade experience turned out to be time well spent. The design is awesome. They spent over a million bucks and had over a thousand prototypes to build the world's best razor. One blade didn't set out to create a good razor or even a great razor. Their goal was to create the perfect tool to deliver the perfect shave. And after using it, there's no doubt that they succeeded. Because the one thing that One Blade teaches you is it's not just about the razor, it's about the total shaving experience. This situation is simple. You get a barbershop shave at home. My face has never felt better. And by the way, you get a lifetime guarantee with this thing. And if you don't like it, there's a no hassle, 60 day trial, no harm, no foul. But I doubt you'll wanna let go of it. It's just that good. If you are ready to elevate your shaving experience, try One Blade today. Listeners should go to onebladeshave.com and enter the discount code ARIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off their entire purchase. That's onebladeshave.com and enter the discount code ARIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off your entire purchase. One Blade, come for the shave, stay for the deep breath. Here's Emmy winner, Keenan Thompson. So I haven't seen you since you uh, broke Daryl's record. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you very Longest much. Longest serving SNL cast member in history. Absolutely crazy. That yeah. is fantastic. Thank you. It is. I mean, I love it. I just, it's so hard to like put into any kind of context, you know what I mean? Because there's just been so many people that have come through there that are so great, you know what I mean? And like people that are like, that I'm a fan of, you know what I mean? So like to have that kind of a title is just like, I don't even really know what it means, you know what I mean? It's just like, I love doing that show and I wound up staying there for a super long amount of time. When I first started, that's why my eyes were so wide open. It's just so much to take in and like, so many dots to connect between like, what I've seen and like, going from like, buckwheat and like, limos and like, you know, the versions of it from the 80s, you know what I mean, to like, now they still like have town cars and parties and you know what I mean, it's super Hollywood and it's like, it's unbelievable to think that this is the same show, you know what I'm saying, that I'm on now and it's just like, yeah, sure, and they just hand it over to you, you know what I mean, at some point when you're used to like doing it or whatever, they just like turn to you for ideas, it's like, it's nutty, I'm like, you, know, you realize you guys like graduated like Eddie Murphy and Will Ferrell and you know what I mean, like, Phil Harmon and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and like all those people, right? And like now you're looking at me for ideas. It's so weird. So I guess the operative question is, why did you decide to come back? Me? I love it. I mean, I'm just not in a hurry to go anywhere necessarily. And it's not like I have anybody like pulling me out of the show necessarily. Like there's ideas floating around or whatever, but it's not like I need you over here doing this like right away. And then I'd be like, okay, well, sorry, Lord, I can't be here and even if there was that I would still love to be able to find a happy medium like is there a way I can you know 
kind of do both, like maybe shoot the show in the summertime and, you know, still have my season just because it's become my life, you know what I mean? It's the schedule that I'm used to. It's a schedule that makes sense, especially with kids. It's a school year schedule, you know what I mean? It's just a solid way of living for a guy like me, in my opinion, on top of the fact that it's the most incredible job ever. Major cast changes have always been a part of SNL's history. When a big star leaves, it doesn't just disappoint fans, it causes widespread concern. Who is going to fill those shoes? But if there's a legacy to SNL, it is this. When one star departs, it can prove to be less of a crisis than an opportunity. That started almost from the beginning. When Chevy Chase left in the middle of the second season, Lauren Michaels took a chance on a guy named Bill Murray, and cast members John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd were given more airtime, becoming major stars in their own rights. Over the years, the pattern continued. Departures didn't kill the show, but rather gave it an opening to recharge and reinvent itself. Once again, Michael Che. As you get ready for the new season, looking back since you came to Weekend Update, do you feel like every season you're learning more about yourself and about the role? No, I think the hardest thing in comedy is being the stepdad. And I feel like there's the stepdad role of replacing somebody that we already love and we don't know you and you're already behind the eight ball. And sometimes as a stepdad, you try a little hard to be like the last dad or you may not feel as free to be yourself as much or, you know, you're not as open to be yourself as much. You you may try a little bit harder to win that audience over. And a lot of times you kind of just got to be yourself and trust that you're a good enough guy that they'll accept you for who you are. And after time, that's what happens. But initially we were replacing Seth. No one wanted Seth gone, really. You know, like Seth was great. Seth had been the institution. Everybody that was doing Update was kind of doing their version of Seth because he had done it so long that we had forgot what it was as a bare format. We thought we would just have to do Seth jokes. And I had Seth's writers writing Seth's jokes for me to say. And me and Seth have completely different styles of comedy. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's it's very hard same to do. Same background, but no, same, I'm just kidding. Yeah, same background. <laughs> grew up in the same project. No, no. You know, we're very different people. So I, I was trying to do a thing that I just wasn't comfortable doing. And um, I owe a lot of credit to Lauren, who, who was the one that was just like, look, dude, we hired you to be you, be you. And after a while, you start to kind of sneak one pass, and then you realize that nobody's calling the police yet, so you sneak two, and next thing you know, you, you get a little bit of a role going, you know? And the same thing with Joe's. You're also with another anchor, so he's got to find his way, i got to find my way, and then we have to somehow make it seem like we're in the same building at the same time telling jokes, even though the camera's never on us at the same time, which is a very tough thing to do. Once again, Lindsay Shookus. The list of hosts that everybody wishes they have. It used to be Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is still on the list. I still try. <laughs> yeah, he's really funny. And I think we'd make him look great. But, you know, it's not for everybody. I, I mean, people are, I think, I always like to think like every year I turn one or two people. Who's you know? on the Lindsay list? I mean, I'd love Beyonce to do host music. It's the, there's like the score list of the people who are like huge, 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 and there's the people who are like I think would be so great. You know, people who I think like I would love to have Idris Elba on the show. I just trying to figure out the right moment, and he wants to do it, and I think he'd be great. Just trying to figure out like when would timing be right when the um, James Bond movie is ready. Right, exactly. You know, Ryan Gosling said no for a long time, and then he changed his mind. So people do get to a point in their career where they're kind of like, I think I'm ready. I mean, Obama. I mean, either of the Obamas would have been amazing. Um, and you tried, right? Yeah, we've tried over the years. 
and we always keep going. We always keep trying. Michelle's uh, carpool karaoke with James was like awesome. On She's that, incredible. Man. The thing is, though, at the end of the day, for us versus like other shows like that, the live factor really scares people. You know, it's like it's not controlled and it feels scary. And it's, you know, listen, if she said something she didn't want to say, that could be edited out of, you know, Corden's carpool karaoke. But for us, it's like, it's There's scary. no net. I mean, Lauren, you know, over the years has figured out how to really support hosts and for us to give them the right team to kind of lift them up and make them feel good. But it is scary. How important is the Tuesday night dinner? The, uh, the often... <laughs> Depends on who you ask. <laughs> the Latanzi fest. I have gone to Latanzi so many times. I mean, they really like became like my, the servers and the managers like are my family. You know, it's like a different feel for the host. You know, it kind of takes them out of this like work mode, the host, and it takes us into a casual environment where we're eating and we get to know them better. And And Lauren really feels like it helps them get to know us and us get to know them and kind of make them more comfortable. I mean, I always sit right next to them. So it's, you know, I definitely get to know them on a different level over a two-hour dinner. Um, and some of the writers... When they get asked to it, they think, oh, my gosh, it's going to mean a really long night then because that's three right. hours I'm not working. Yes, exactly. I mean, if I was like had to go write three sketches, I'd probably feel differently about it. The timing of it doesn't make sense to most people of like why, you know, in the middle of like writing night, do we go out and have dinner? But I try to – I always am thoughtful of like, okay, well, if someone went last week, I try not to have them go two weeks in a row or just so that's not – like it's not our entire cast that goes. So I try and space it out so they don't have to go. There have been a couple times since you've been on the show where um, – on a Wednesday night or Thursday night, I seem to remember Saturday afternoon even, where the hosts have gotten a little scared. And at least in two occasions, you definitely talked them off the ledge. Could you talk about one of those and what that process is like? I mean, listen, I think what I've found over the years is like a lot of people freak out throughout the week. It depends. It's always at a different time. It might be Thursday afternoon after they look at their sketches like, I'm not going to be able to do any of this right. Or it's Saturday at six o'clock and they just finished their monologue rehearsal and they're like, that was awful. I'm terrible. You know, and, and so I've seen a lot of different versions of it. I think for me, it's always trying to get like one-on-one -on -one time with someone and like closing the door and getting people out. And by the way, that's where the Tuesday night getting to know someone personally really helps me later on in the week because I'm like, I know them. I know them. I've gotten to know like who they are as people, their families, their stories. And so it kind of helps you like have this connection that's more than just like, hey, I met you yesterday. Let me talk you off a ledge now. It's yeah. like I've kind of gained some trust. And again, that's kind of like the process of being with someone for six full days. You get to know them on a different level. And so, yeah, I mean, there has been some real intense moments and but it's human, you know, it's like we're all just like humans, we're all trying our best and it's like, like it comes down to a human level of being like, you're not, nothing's perfect. If it was supposed to be perfect, it wouldn't be live. You know, if we wanted it to be perfect in every cut and every line and every word to be perfect, we wouldn't do it live. And like people get to see you in a way that they're not going to get to see you ever before, which is like, what are you like as just like a, a regular person who is like kind of scared and maybe, you know, trying their best and, you know, some people rise to the occasion and some people it's, you know, complicated for, but I think that's why people still like the show because you never know what's going to happen. I can sense if it's going to be a long week on Tuesday. I can tell if the host is going to be really strong usually after Wednesday night. You know, after seeing them do 40 sketches, you have a sense of like, okay, they kind of have a sense of how to do this. Lauren Michaels famously said, the show doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's 11.30. But before that, there's a week-long rush to pitch ideas write and revise scripts, kill at the table read, and then pray your sketch doesn't get killed in dress. What's your life like on Tuesday nights, writing night, as head writer now, compared to before? 
before it was, I didn't sleep a single minute and I was up, you know, I was here from noon on Tuesday until 1130 on Wednesday night, straight through having not slept at all, trying to write like six different sketches. And that would kill me now. I mean, just with other things going on and also just being older, it would, I couldn't do it. So now it's more trying to write a little at home before I come in so that I have a little bit of time to myself before I get kind of inundated with people coming in with ideas or Lauren calling with problems or, you know, whatever comes up that week. And then coming in and sort of spending a few hours dealing, just sort of getting my head around what are people writing, you know, talking to the producers at the show who are tracking, what are people writing, what cast is being covered that week or not, like who needs more attention in terms of just they don't have someone to write with that week or they didn't have something in the show last week, so let's make sure someone's making a really conscious effort to write something good for them this week. And you're kind of getting the lay of the land. You're also hearing what Lauren's concerns are or you're trying to get ahead of things that are going to come up later in the week. Like we know a special guest is coming in that Saturday. Is there a way to get them to think through the best use of them now so we could have that part written for the table read so that at least that's in motion? And then also there's the update side of it, which is figuring out what kind of update features we might want to have that week and who's writing them and will they be ready for the table read? Will we hear them? A balance of getting some new cast members to try things at the read-through table, plus some veterans that you can trust. Anytime they're out there, they're going to score. And so you use some balance of that. And then, then we have a dinner with the host every Tuesday night. Of, so we'll go with Lauren and the host, and that's probably at 8 p.m. to 11 p.m., something like that on Tuesday which I used to go to occasionally, but now I pretty much go to all the time. And that's three hours you lose writing too. And then you get back at 11. I usually try to write something in that 11 to 1 a.m. period of time, at which point then there's a big production meeting at around 1, uh, sometimes midnight if you're lucky, with Lauren, all the producers, and he's getting a sense of everything we've learned from that day about who's doing what. And then usually there, I write for a little while longer, maybe nowadays till like four or so, I hope usually around that. And then I try to go home, probably half the time I go home, sleep for, you know, four or five hours and then come back. And then in the morning on Wednesday is when I do the bulk of my writing. So the table reads at three. And so I basically write from 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. pretty frantically and try to write like two more pieces or three more pieces to get ready for the table read. And that's usually a combination of an idea I had last night that I sort of thought through, and then an idea I sort of had but have not thought through at all, and then usually one idea that upon coming back to work Wednesday morning, I've discovered no one wrote something for this person, or this whole topic in the news has not been covered yet, and I try to scramble and write something in that realm so that it's covered or the cast member's covered in some way. It gets almost to the point of having to free write to get things in in time. And I'm very notoriously late with all of my things. So the script department is usually pretty angry at me, even though they're very nice and tolerant toward me. 
I'm usually pushing those limits and sometimes finishing sketches between the first and the second half of read-through so they can get done for the second half of read-through, which is not a pleasant experience. That whole time is like rising anxiety as I know I'm about to disappoint the script department. <laughs> so Colin and Che are head writers now. Will they come by and say, hey, come on, we need you, or... Oh, no. They won't come by and say that. They'll be in their office. They'll be like, everybody's like kind of in their lanes, kind of doing their thing. And like, but it's like a hub of just creativity constantly flowing, like almost like a comedy highway. Everybody's just going on on their separate journeys. And and you'll check in all the time. Like, I'll check in with Colin, like, yo, I got this idea. Or I'll check in with Che, like, yo, I got this idea, but I got to go by his office. He ain't coming to my office. You know, I've only been there a year. (laughs) He ain't coming there to check on me. But they're all like super helpful and and giving you perspective on things, too. Like, oh, this joke would work, and they'll tell you why I wouldn't or why I would. They're great, man. I love working with both of those guys. The reality of when you're the head writer at SNL, there's two realities. One is it's Lauren's show. You're not making the decision. So you can't have too much existential anxiety about it because it's not your ultimate decision. Whereas in the past, the last time I was head writer, I I had a deep existential anxiety about every decision. And I was like, what's going on? How do I do this? But you have to realize it's not ultimately your decision. So that responsibility is not completely on you. The other reality when you're a head writer is you're just one small piece of a writing staff. Your success or failure as a head writer is largely based on how good the writers are that are on the staff. You could be a brand new writer and you're contributing as much to the show and bringing a whole new vision to the show in a way someone who's been here 12 years is not doing, you know? So what you're really trying to do as a head writer, I think, is try to champion the ideas that feel the newest. If newer writers want to bounce ideas off of you, try to be honest with them if you think something's not going to work or if you think something will work and you have an idea for how it could be you know, improved just because you have some experience and know maybe have some good ideas for it. But really, it's the way of the show goes with the general writing staff, especially newer writers. You know, when you have, we have a lot of really funny newer writers on the show who are contributing a ton and who are making the show great. And really, also, it's like the people who are now supervising writers who are Fran and Sudi and Streeter are writing a ton of the show and are, I feel like I probably wrote even more when I was in their position than I do now because you end up doing update stuff or we end up being in production meetings. But those guys are writing brilliant pieces. And being head writer is just sort of also stepping back and realizing who is doing great work and trying to shepherd that onto the show as much as possible. Last season, you were one of the head writers along with Colin and uh, it's a big transition season. Mm-hmm. How did that affect you? And what did you learn from that experience that you're going to bring to bear with the new season? I think it was responsibility because I always wrote sketches for the show. But prior to that, you I would just write what I thought was funny and what I thought could work, you know, without kind of where it would fit in the show, how it would fit in the show, if this was the right show for it. I would just write the ideas as it came. But now you're thinking a little bit more outside of yourself coverage wise. Do we have a, a smart cold open? Do we have a good monologue? Do we have a good first sketch out of monologue? You know, like that's kind of the most important parts. Is a summer different being a head writer versus not being a head writer? What is the difference, summer wise? Uh, yes, the job at this point for me would not be that much different if I weren't a head writer, except for a crippling anxiety. 
So every decision you feel, you just feel a burden a little bit, even though it's Lauren's decision, you still feel a anxiety because you want to make good decisions or you want the show to turn out well. I have this image of our liberal white woman in my head from uh, your appearance last year. Mm -hmm. I do, too, in my nightmares. <laughs> Are we going to be uh, seeing more of you in situations like that? Was that a conscious decision or was that just an outlier? That was one of those kind of just an outlier. It was just like a little silly thing that I thought of and they let me do. <laughs> and we wanted to do it just in the show. We had it for the show. And then Lauren was like, what if we just put it at the end of update, kind of like a, you know, weird little thing. And I thought that would be really fun. And he always has like good ideas as to where stuff should go. And um, yeah, that was just like a kind of fun little silly thing. I don't know. Things don't recur as much anymore because I just think people, you know, like with the Internet, you get to see something, that, you know, ad nauseum. So it's a little weird to keep doing it. But, you know, so I don't really like doing things twice or three times. But that's one of the things I get asked about a lot. <laughs> Yeah, well, we kind of miss her. Yeah. <laughs> she had a lot to say. Yeah, it's fun. It was fun. Origins is brought to you by One Blade Shave, because One Blade Shave offers a closer, more refined shave. Now, Jim, have you checked this out? Yeah, I actually have. The design is awesome. They actually spent over a million dollars on this thing and built, like, more than a thousand prototypes to construct the world's best razor. But I don't get what's so good about the design. Well, it's like this weird, perfect blend between old-school design and great technology. So I kind of put my 18-blade razor aside and tried this. I'm telling you, T, it looks so simple, you don't even realize how high-tech it is. So you, you tried it? Yeah, I have. But you got to understand something. This is different than what we're used to, like in shaving. This is kind of like the Ferrari of razors. It's a whole different thing. The one thing you have to keep in mind is you don't want to rush through this. It's harder to do than your regular razor, but it winds up being completely worth it. I mean, the results are just better. It's for the guy who wants literally the equivalent of a barbershop shave, who wants to take some time and do it right. And this delivers like literally the best experience. Count me in. I'm actually going to try this. So if you're ready to really elevate your shaving experience, try One Blade today. Listeners should go to OneBladeShave.com and enter discount code ORIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off their entire purchase. One Blade Shave. Equip yourself with the best. Hey, Angel. So how was your week? Well, you know, Tommy's fighting tonight, so I've been better. <laughs> well, I hope he wins. Yeah, well, I hope he stays alive to see our kids grow up. So how many more hits till it's enough? <laughs> so the character is her name's Angel, and she's every boxer's girlfriend from every movie about boxing ever. <laughs> How the hell did you come up with that? It was a few years ago when Southpaw was coming out, that Jake Gyllenhaal, Rachel McAdams movie. And, you know, there was just a scene in the preview where she says something like, you know, I fight for our family. And I was like, wait. That sounds a lot like what Amy Adams said in The Fighter, which sounds a lot like this <laughs> character said in another boxing movie. And I was like... And many episodes of Ray Donovan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just the dialogue kind of seems interchangeable of the way these women are written. So it was just like, you know, they're always the fighter. So I went and I just did a little research to see if my theory was right. And I was like, oh, I think it's right. And then just to have it connect with the audience was like, I just felt so lucky that they got it. <laughs> do you do a lot of male impressions? 
Oh, uh, just a few. I mean, I have that Owen Wilson. I do a little Steve Buscemi in my stand-up. I have Michael Jackson. I like to sing as Michael Jackson. Yeah, the Owen Wilson I saw. It was oh, yeah. pretty fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Does he know you do it? He knows I do it, but I've never met him before, and I hope to. But my dad has met him. Isn't that crazy? My dad's a fence contractor, and there was a house that he was working on and put a fence around, and um, Owen Wilson and his friends walked by. My dad just, you know, took a double take. He's like, is that Owen? He had some sort of Owen Wilson walk, too. And my dad was like, oh, hey, I'm Melissa's dad. And, they, you know, they chatted a little bit, and he's like, oh, yeah, she does an impression. It's pretty good. And then what was funny was my dad told Owen, Owen, look out, there's a beehive. Look out for the bees. And Owen was like, thanks, I'll look out for those bees. <laughs> I just think that's funny. He's like, watch out for those bees. On his way out, he told my dad, nice meeting you, and watch out for those bees. How about the social side of the equation? Do you go to the after party or the after after? Have you like kind of gotten into that scene? I go to the after parties. I've only been to the after after once because then I would be up to like 6.30 a.m. But um, yeah, the after parties, I find that I just really want to eat. I'm so, I'm so hungry at that point. So you don't eat before show. A little bit. And I haven't figured out like what's the right thing to eat before the show. That Should I eat? Should I not? I don't know. But I do know that after the show, I'm very hungry. I'm very grateful to go to that after party to eat some food. Now, do you go to the after after parties, or no, you, I'm too old for that. Now. You check out after the after. I have to. I mean, I'm one of the only moms at the show, so it's like I have to like get up in the morning and like I get to sleep in a little bit, but like I have to be able to like you know be a, a full mother and engage with my daughter. So I I cut it off. I usually try and like if I can leave, walk out the door of the after party at like three three thirty. That's pretty good for me. What's it like when you're on a week when either someone's hosting or the musical act where you're a real fan? I mean, that happened. My first episode, Jay-Z was uh, in that first episode with Ryan Gosling. And, I mean, I've listened to Jay-Z my whole life. So I think I was going up to him and I was saying the same exact thing like several times. And I was like, what, was what is wrong with you, Chris? I'm walking up to him I'm like, yo, Jay, hey, man, thanks for everything you do for the culture. You know what I mean? Like, it's great to see you. I see you up here like this. This is crazy. Thank you for making my first year's kickoff dope. And he was like, oh, yeah, no problem. The second time I saw him, I was like, yo, Jay, that was crazy. Thank you for making my first. And I was, I was like, you got to say something new. Say something new. Do not say the same thing, Chris. And so then I see him again. And I was like, yo, I got to ask you, uh, when you mentioned Eric Benet in 444, did he call you like, man, I was just chilling, dog. You ain't have to do that to me. And he laughed. He was like, I should send him an edible arrangement, huh? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, and then and I'm laughing, and in my head, I'm like, I'm joking with Jay Z. This is dope. This is life is dope right now. And then I just see him out in, at the after party and, and meet Beyonce and be able to shake her hand and and like and meet Swiss Beats and all these people. It's like it made the job very real. Like, oh man, this is like life now. And it's just so cool. I feel honored to be able to see and meet those people. Meeting Eminem was dope. You know what I mean? I mean, there were so many people last year that meant a lot. Cardi, like, it was just, I mean, that's so much fun to see that part of it. But have you wrapped your mind around the fact that now there are people who are thinking about that 
with Chris Red. That's insane. You guys are all insane. No, I'm playing. <laughs> it's no, it's, it's. I'm still getting used to that. I still feel very regular. You know what I'm saying? I still am re- like outside of the fact I just like get to have fun with my dream. You know. But yeah, it's yeah. People will be nervous sometimes, and I'm like, oh man, hey, I'm, if you did, I didn't even shower today. If you had to know how dirty my armpits are, right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, like no, nah, I shower all the time. But yeah, it's super dope and very humbling. And I, I've met famous people uh, when I was like younger, like not a lot, but I, I mean, I met Kanye, and I met a couple other people in. And all throughout this game, as I've been working these little jobs here and there, I meet people either they're really nice or they're, or they're assholes, whatever it may be. And I always said to myself that I was just going to be trying to put positive energy out and good energy out to people, man, And because the world needs that, you know. And so I just always make it a point to just, like, always extend. I always try to have a conversation. Now, you run out of time, so you can't have a conversation with everybody. But I try to show as much love as I can to people. I feel lucky. Fifteen years ago, I was pretty used to being able to walk around with, like, no hat on and not, you know, have to worry about people, like, super-duper recognizing my face. Like, now it's like, if I really want to, like, have time to myself, I better wear my hat. You know what I'm saying? Or if I really want to, like, not be bothered every single step. Because now everybody has an opportunity to stop you with their phone, like, take a picture or whatever. Sometimes, back in the day when it was an autograph thing, people had to find a pen and a paper, and a lot of times they just let you go. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because it's like, I don't want to hold you all day. But now it's just like... People will fumble with that phone until they get that camera up and get that, what's my password and like, is it on selfie mode or whatever. So yeah, it's just like, at any given moment, you could have, you know, an interaction with somebody that, you know, will stutter step your day, especially if there's a long street like the ones in New York, you know what I mean? Like every two steps and then people see you, they're like, oh, what's going on over there? And just, you know, draws more attention or whatever. Here's Emmy nominee, A.D. Bryant. I definitely feel like when I first started at SNL, people all the time were like, so what's next? And I was like, nothing. I want to just only do this forever until I figure it out a little bit. But, you know, now I've been here longer and you just make friends and people ask you to do favors and you start just doing a little bit more. And then, well, I love the work. It's like so fun. I would do it for free. Please don't tell Lauren, but I would. And it opens doors for you to get to do it in different ways and you learn to produce your own pieces and all those things and then you want to take those skills and put them, <laughs> you know, in other places. Here's SNL producer Steve Higgins. Nowhere are the wigs is good. Nowhere are the sets is good. Nowhere are the costumes is good. Nowhere are they as fast as this. Nowhere do they come instant gratification. Nowhere do you get to play in a period of month 20 different people. Do you know how many cast members have said to me the exact words, I got spoiled? Yeah. Oh, definitely spoiled. That's why you have to. I'm so glad I worked at other places before I came here or else this would be zero instead of this being like, oh, there's no place better than this. Once, you know, people would ask me once I got here, what's next for you? Oh, this, there's no next. This is it. I've hit beyond what I thought I could do. And when you're here, you go anywhere else and it just seems like you're going in slow motion. I think you always think about how many more seasons you have in you just from a standpoint of how often will they let me do this for one and what more do you have to say before someone else has something more fun to say than you, you know what I mean? So I think you kind of always think like that and I didn't go to school a lot, like I didn't go to college and when I went to high school I didn't really go to class. But it feels like that school thing of you always think about what's coming next but you also know that at some point we're going to really miss this, you know? So it's this weird kind of one foot in, one foot out attitude that you have of how long do I want to be here? But also what would happen if I'm not here anymore, if I didn't have this anymore, you know? 
I like Lauren a lot, man, and I vibe with him real well. You know, we always have very real conversations, and I make all my conversations with Lauren very meaningful. You know, so I don't like look to, I don't look to seek approval, but I, I do look to understand the job, understand how to do me within that job because that's what I wanted to do. I came in the door like, yo, I want to be able to talk my shit the way I talk it, you know, and uh, figure out how to do it in your world. How has Lauren changed since when you first arrived at the show to now? I or mean, has he? Honestly, I don't, he hasn't really, you know what I mean? Like the only thing is like, you know, just getting older, you know what I mean? And like, I don't know, just like watching a guy go from 60 to 70, you know what I mean? It's like before he had like super duper strong opinions about every single thing. Now it's just like maybe 70% of things he has like strong opinions about and like, you know, the 30% he'll just like, you know, trust in his people or whatever to like kind of get it right. But yeah, he's been delegating a lot, trusting in his like producers and stuff a lot and stuff, as opposed to like being so like overly, you know, guru, you know, hands on, trying to run the whole ship basically from his office all alone. Person wise, he hasn't changed at all. What do you think though when you heard that he was gonna hang on till 80? I'm like, go for it. You know, like why let it go? I'm saying, I'm, you tell him, you asking me why hold on to a job? <laughs> I'm like, hold on to a job forever, man. Like. It's been his life for 40 years, you know, like going to that office and like be able to be in New York like that year after year after year and like the connections it's brought him, you know, it's not something that you just want to like go sit on the beach for, you know, you can always like go to the beach whenever he wants, but you also want to be able to like get out of the house and like feel like you're doing something productive, you know, especially if you have an opportunity to do it on a weekly basis like that, you know. We had Ariana drop out for emotional reasons two days ago, and then that's our premiere, and then Kanye stepped up, and he'll be there. And so the reach of the show and the number of people that you know will step forward is just somehow now, I think, probably at its peak. I think you could tell it from the reunion shows. Between 15 and then 25, I think, at 25, I sort of thought I could stop, you know? The kids were young, I said, Dallas, I think I could get out now, because 25 felt that. But the kids were in school. I was going to be in the city anyway, and then I got excited about some part of it, and then I sort of realized it's what I do. And then that was so exhausting that I waited till 40, and then the 40th was a thing I really wanted to get right. And then I thought, oh, I could get out now. And then you go, no, and then the election happened. And it isn't like Pacino and Godfather 3, you know, because hopefully this is not Godfather 3. But what I mean by it is, I also think that as long as I'm there, some things won't be, you know, it's not a show you could make ever again. It's too expensive. It's from another time. Granted, because of the internet and the worldwide exposure, there's lots of other revenue streams, as they say. So... It sustains itself and is on some level profitable, obviously. And Tom Broker and Eric Kenward and Streeter and Lenny were over doing the SNL China, helping the SNL China show. And I think they have 27 cast. And there was a statistic that the fourth show, there were 600 million streams. And you go, I'm happy they're doing it. I don't know how they're doing it or what they're doing in it, but but there's some effect on it that you go, I don't think they're going right after the chairman, 
but I think it begins and in these in a sort of global way with the kind of world I grew up in post-World War II, sort of liberalism or a kind of enlightenment, that's not happening as much. It's threatened now. And so this kind of thing where you're trying to, you know, be funny about things in a, in a way that is in some way illuminating, its first purpose is to get laughs. But also, if it's done with intelligence and a certain amount of style and all that, it has real influence. Not to mention being a coping mechanism. Yeah, without question. A little birdie told me that um, you decided that at the very least you're going to be around for 50, <laughs> and which means I have to do another edition of the yeah, book yeah. after. I, I think one year at a time. But I think the people I know who work right to the end tend to stay happier and alive. And I think feeling useful and doing what you do, and if you're good at it, you keep playing. And an athlete is defined by the length of time that their body can still perform at that high level. But people who do what I do, you can, you know, in a tennis metaphor, you can sort of rely more on the lob game than, than charging the net. Did your parents watch every episode? Like- every single episode. They're down south. They moved down south back to Mississippi. And so they'll text me like, it's about to come on. I'm like, My, I know I'm here. <laughs> Once I can really connect to how someone will be in their body, I feel like it makes it a lot easier. It gets me out of my own head. I don't feel like Heidi anymore, and I can just be this other person. And and that's the most freeing thing of all, when I can get out of this head. Do you wake up happy? (laughs) Yes, I do. I wake up very tired, but I wake up very happy. Coming up. On the next chapter of Origins, Sex and the City, in honor of the show's 20th anniversary. I recently sat down with Sarah Jessica Parker, and she was beyond compelling. Sarah Jessica remains one of my favorite people to interview. We'll also hear from other cast members, showrunner Michael Patrick King, Candace Bushnell, who started it all, and more, all in a search to understand how a humorous newspaper column about dating in New York City grew into a worldwide cultural phenomenon. That's premiering October 31st, Origins of Sex and the City. Before I leave, a big bear hug to my producer, Chris Basil. I wouldn't want to do this without him. Hell, I couldn't do this without him. Our man in the studio, Terrence Malangone, redefines dedication. And my new assistant, Brent Katz, is beginning his second month on board. And that's, as they say, a good thing. For Origins, this is Jim Miller. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.